I am here with Father Leo Masborg. He is the National Director of the Pontifical Missionary Societies in Austria. And Father Leo, uh, thank you for making time with us today. How long did you travel and work with Mother Teresa? Well, approximately six to seven years. She, on and off, she asked me to accompany her or to do translations for her or to give retreats to the sisters. and So we were in, in constant exchange and relationship during these six, seven years, because my bishop very kindly told her that I would, he would allow me to be at 50% at her disposition. And she apparently heard that twice. <laughs> <laughs> and you were a young priest. You weren't that long ordained, right? I was ordained in 82. And I knew her before, but... The real work started after my ordination, and so my first question to her was, uh, after she congratulated me to the uh, ordination, and <laughs> I asked her mother, what should a young priest do? I was speaking anonymously. What should a young priest do if he feels called to missionary work in Russia? And she didn't think a second, she said he should do what his bishop tells him. Mm. <laughs> and so in order to justify, because she probably knew that I was talking about myself, uh-huh. I, I said, but if the bishop doesn't say anything, what should he do? Mm, then he he should do what the Pope tells him. <laughs> 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 so she was not on any other any other reason, just obedience mm. in the church. She was a very, very obedient woman, although she knew exactly to whom she owed obedience and to whom she didn't. So you began work with her then immediately after ordination? I was ordained in 82. Then I had to work as a chaplain in Austria and Vienna for two years. Then my parish priest died uh, suddenly. So I had to continue with the parish. But that was already the time when she had asked me to come to, to I believe, to Nicaragua. And, and then... And I found an, an American priest, actually, who was, who was studying German in in Austria, and he took my place for a month or two, so I was free to, to go. So that was the start in 83 or 84. And how did she affect your priesthood? If I only knew, I'm afraid, <laughs> that, she, <laughs> that she affected it, but maybe I didn't react too vividly. But... I told somebody today, there's one word which stays with me, which comes from a a trip which we did on a helicopter, invited by the Czechoslovak president. He wanted to see Mother Trees, and she wanted to see him because she wanted to ask him permission to open a house in in Prague. And on that that plane, on that uh, helicopter, the helicopter was supposed to fly very low, because of Mother Jesus' bad heart condition. And I learned one thing. She was sitting next to the window, and you could see everything. It was a beautiful day. Everything was green. You could see the forests. He was almost touching the, 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 the trees. And a certain moment, Mother Jesus turned around and said, Father, look. Oh, so I looked down, and really, it was beautiful. And she said, Father, it's easy. So you, see, you see, it's easy to understand God's beauty silence. After a while, it's easy to understand God's almightiness because he has created all this. And then after a while, but Father, it's difficult to understand God's humility. And I must admit, it didn't, 
it didn't click, I didn't understand a lot. But the word, the simple word, God's humility, has stayed with me through all those years. And when you start looking at things from the point of view of God's humility, of God's modesty, of God's uh, littleness, like the word I thirst, which was the nucleus of to her spirituality. I thirst, what does he thirst for? He thirsts, his last word on the cross, according to St. John, uh, he thirsts certainly for water, but certainly not only for water, but he thirsts for the love of his creatures. And that's and so I started reflecting on God's humility, thirsting for the love of his creatures, and not being able to force us to love him. We are free. We can say yes, we can say no. We can come closer to him, we can walk away. So it's these things, they stay with you. And I hope that they, they had an influence on my life. And we'll see, we'll see. I'm a bit worried. What do you think Mother Teresa would tell, like an American person, married man or woman, and you know, has a family, that thirsting for love, how, how would they love Jesus? Love until it hurts. That was her definition almost of true love. Because it, until it hurts, you're, not, you're never sure if you really love the other or you love yourself. And once it really costs you something, like it costs Jesus to die for us on the cross, then you grow into following Jesus. Take upon yourself your cross and follow me. So probably that's the same in marriage as it's in religious life, as in a priestly life. You you can only be sure if you really, when you're ready to sacrifice something, when you sacrifice uh, of, of your your wealth, not only your material wealth, but maybe your intellectual wealth, when you listen to stupid talking without saying, I'm more clever, <laughs> sometimes it costs but that's that's a sign of love because you you open a space for the other, mm-hmm. and then you see that just opening that space is like 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 healing a wound. Many people just want to talk; they they don't need any advice. They just want mm-hmm. to say what they have to say. So if you open that space by making three crosses on your lips mm-hmm. and not opening your mouth, right. it costs you. Right. But this kind of small little things. And she repeatedly said, um, it doesn't matter how big the things are you're doing. It matters how much love you put in the doing. And that love you detect only, does it cost me anything? Then you can be sure. You told us a great story the other night at dinner about uh, a reporter asking Mother Teresa, how has things changed in Calcutta? Yes, well, we are always efficiency-orientated. So, did we accomplish? Did we do? Uh, did we do enough? So, what has changed? So, one of very tactful uh, journalists asked Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa, now you are 82 years old, you will die soon. Um, what has changed in the world? And she replied, I never wanted to change the world. I only wanted to be a drop of clean water in which the love of God can sparkle a thousandfold. Mm. And I must say, we, we've been to Calcutta two years ago with our 
Corpus Christi movement, the last the last foundation of Mother Teresa for secular priests. And we asked ourselves the question, what has changed? And we all somehow came to the conclusion, nothing has changed in Calcutta. Calcutta is as dirty as it was 20 years ago or 50 years ago. Calcutta is as noisy as it is, it's polluted, it's... The poor are still the poor, they're dying. Maybe, maybe a slight change that there's not so many people dying on the road. So maybe that's the work of the sisters already because now with the cell, cell phones they can uh, announce quicker there's a, a person who is sick or whatever. Maybe the health system has improved a little bit. But basically the sisters are still working with the poorest of the poor. They're still taking care of of children of unwed mothers, they are still uh, accepting all the children that the parents can't either can't or don't want to accept. So they are still fighting abortion by adoption. Nothing has changed in this sense. And I remember that we met, we we visited one of the houses in Calcutta, which was for handicapped children. And the sisters told us it was it was beautiful to get there. We got there half past five in the morning for Mass, and the, the sisters were in prayer, and one of the handicapped children came down to open us the door. And he could hardly move properly, but he was so radiant and so joyful, he took us, as, he almost embraced us spiritually. Mm. And so we felt very welcomed. He took us to the chapel very quietly, um, so we prayed, and then, then we stayed in that house for the whole day. And the sisters told us many things. And what we noticed was the care and the tenderness with which they handle the children. Mm-hmm. They, they have a fantastic equipment for, for calming children down, uh, for, for autistic children. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, there was, uh, I think it was Andrew was his name, a young boy, maybe eight years old, and he, he was sitting there completely closed in himself in an autistic way. And, and I said, what, what are you doing with these children? Well, they said, if we dis- discover some qualities, or we try to further them. Otherwise, they will stay with us until they die. Mm. I mean, so nothing changes in the, in the world. Mm-hmm. And, but, but with this Andrew, she said, I'll show you something. And she took me with the boy to, in, a, in a small room where they had a, a whole a set of drums, but a real half-professional set of drums. I said, what are you doing in your in a convent with this set of drums? She said, well, look, Andrew sat down there, and then she called four other handicapped children, and she and she said, we sing this and the, that song. And so she started singing with the children, and at a certain moment, Andrew picked up the two drumsticks and started in a perfect rhythm, in a perfect rhythm, and more and more and more and more. And I can tell you, he played almost like a professional drummer. And then the songs were over. They sang a second one, a third one, a fourth one, a sixth one, a tenth one. But then when the songs were over, bloop, he fell back into his completely autistic uh, way. So I I thought this is precisely what they do, to be uh, a sparkling ray of God's love amongst those children and amongst all those who visit. Mm. Because you don't go away mm. with the same convictions as you had before. Right. I mean, sometimes I know even you know, for Christians and the apostolate and everything, sometimes we can still make it about ourselves. 
right? Mm-hmm. And our achievements, our accomplishments. Yes. We helped these people. Yes. We did this for them. And what would she say about that? Thank you. She would probably say, "Don't count. <laughs> Jesus will count for you." <laughs> probably, right. Right. as simple as that. Yeah. She trusted completely in in God's providence, and she was also aware. Because of that first call which she got from Jesus within the within her religious call, and she said to Jesus in his in those dialogue in those uh, inlocutions in this speaking in the heart, and she was answering in her heart, and she was saying to Jesus, Jesus, can't you look for somebody else because I'm sinful and I'm really incapable of doing this. And apparently Jesus answered, that's what he writes in, in, the, in the letters we have and which you can find in the book of Father Brian, Come Be My Light. Mm-hmm. Um, she answered in the sense, I'm incapable and, and sinful. And Jesus says, I know you're incapable and sinful. That's why I chose you, so that you will always know that it's my work and not yours. And I saw that applied into practice in Guat- Guatemala when a journalist on the way from the airport to the house, said, Mother, you're doing so wonderful things. And she said, it's his work. Mm. It's his work. And she wouldn't even think about this anymore. Mm. And another journalist asked her, Brother, aren't you getting a little a little proud when people say so many things about you? She said, look, this enters from one side of the ear, comes out the other side, and there's nothing in between. Mm. Would she ever say that she had any failures or regrets? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. If she made mistakes, she would apologize. She would say sorry, sorry. She would immediately say sorry. Also, if she was too harsh, because she was not a goody-goody. She was a very, how to say, a southerner type, we say. She was very dynamic. And I believe that she was she was also choleric. But she, of course, she had an enormous self-control. But if she sort of burst out with a remark or something like this... She was, oh, sorry, sorry, no, 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 no. Or little things. She would immediately apologize. Mm. And if she found out that something was wrong, she would say, no, this was wrong, and I apologize. Mm. You know, we talk about her motivation being love and not going after numbers and things, but yet she is known for just being incredibly driven in her work, just pushing herself to the maximum. Mm. Um, how did how did she maintain that? What was the source of her strength? You mean how did she maintain the rhythm and uh, how could she do what she did? Right. Well, in the in the commission for the beautification, somebody did a statistic uh, based on her passports, yeah. on the stamps in her mm-hmm. passports, and and on other data he had, and apparently she she every two point six days. She changed house, country, or continent. And that through the period of 35 years. Mm. I mean, that is a drive which she had. And she was not very good in waiting. <laughs> she was, she was, I remember a story which I wasn't there personally, but in Australia apparently they, she wanted to set up a school for some poor indigenous children. And, the, and the, she asked the parish priest whether he had a place where, they sh- where she could put up that provisional school. And he said, yes, there's a barrack down there, and uh, we, could, we could use this. And she said, well, can we put some chairs and table? And the parish priest said, well, 
uh, yes, okay, on Tuesday we will we'll start doing She said, what's wrong with today? <laughs> and she started doing it immediately. In the evening, the class was ready for the children. So it was, she had an urge as if, let's not waste time. She would repeatedly say, let's not waste time. And, but she would never push you. She would say, let's not waste time, meaning herself. Mm-hmm. And she, when we got home in the evening, she would, see, she would look after us, say, Father, you must be very tired. Now, go to rest, right, right now, go to rest. And then she would get, re- re- then she would, uh, get, uh, ev- get everything ready. She would make the bed, she would uh, provide some, some drink. She would look after everything first. And once you are, you are ready to go to sleep, she would go to pray. Mm-hmm. Or to do or to write her letters. Or to, she would continue working. Mm-hmm. She would spend like long periods of prayer, like in adoration, before Jesus in the tabernacle. Yes, she would. She would have an hour of adoration as, as a minimum every day, because that was the rule of the congregation, and she herself had promoted that because. Uh, when they had lots of work to do, the sister suggested that they should reduce the one-hour duration they had per week at the beginning. They should get rid of that in order to be able to help the poor. Mm. It was a temptation. You know? mm. And she said, that's a good idea, but you know what? We will, we will increase our duration because we, we'll, if we do adoration every day for an hour, for sure God will send us many more sisters <laughs> and then we can do more work. What would be her advice? Did she ever give you advice on how to pray, like how to meditate or how to adore our Lord? And was that a place where she would satisfy the thirst of Christ? No, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't remember any advice. Father, pray for me. She would, she would not give advice to priests. She, would, she, has, she had such a respect of priests. She loved them dearly. She preferred him in everything, <laughs> but she would, she would, no, she never, did she ever give me an advice on how to pray, Father? Pray, pray oh. for me. She would ask for prayers. Did she, she would never. did she ever say how she prayed herself? No, but she would do it, mm-hmm. and you could see it. Mm-hmm. And that, that was maybe the advice, that was the teaching, the way you saw how she prayed. And and she she prayed with intensity. You could feel that presence of God in her and her presence in Him. And I remember one that was at the very beginning. I was a bit, I was still still a bit skeptical about whether she was really as pious as people say, as she was really as holy as people say, because there was a, a, all kinds of adulation. to say adulation, and people were sort of admiring her. Like, so I was mm, a bit careful. So I was, I remember, I was kneeling in a, in a chapel, with my eye turned to her, to just to observe how she prayed, what she did. And we were alone in the chapel, actually, and I saw that outside somebody was going up and down. At a certain moment, obviously a sister prompted that person to walk into the chapel to interrupt Mother in her prayer, just, I don't know, to ask something. And so he came in and I saw, ah, now he's going to disturb her. Now we'll see how she reacts. <laughs> Will she be nervous or sort of... Uh, and when he came in and she looked up with a smile as if she first had awaited him to come for hours, mm-hmm. greeted him as if he, if he was the best friend, 
listened to him carefully, gave an answer, he left, and immediately afterwards she was complete in completely deep prayer again. Mm. And that, that taught me a lot about prayer. What would she say about um, like uh, people getting discouraged? You know, they have maybe they maybe they know clearly like this work they have to do, like in a family. You know, it's pretty clear your duties and everything. But the person gets discouraged and loses kind of energy and zeal. Probably there's a, there are big differences between people and people. It's a big difference if a if a lay person that gets discouraged because of too much workload or whatever, or whether a religious gets discouraged. So I, I would say offhand that, that she would, to the religious, she would say, pray more. Just pray. This is, this is, you, you belong to Jesus. You have given yourself to Jesus. So he can do with you whatever he wants. And you only have to, to cleave to that relationship. She would say, one day she said, on, on December the 8th, when you emit your final vows, you cleave to Jesus. And whatever, you belong to him. And whatever he does with you, um, you follow. Even if he cuts you into a thousand pieces, every single piece only belongs to him. So for the religious, that was a very special relationship. And she was very clear on that, that, we had to, to, to learn really to be poor because she said poverty protects all the other vows. Mm. If you are not poor, it's very difficult to be obedient. If you're full of yourself, it's very difficult to be chaste. And also if you are full of yourself, it's very difficult to have a fourth vow, full-hearted and free service to the poorest of the poor. So if you want to make some money, it would have been very difficult to give free service to the poorest of the poor. But the, the sisters, they never accept any um, stipends, income, money from governments, from the church, nothing. Always free. So 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 much free that she, she never asked anything from the poor. Even if they gave... If she fed them for, for days or weeks, she would not ask the slightest contribution. And that, that earned her some critique, especially in the affluent world. They say, well, why do you spoil the poor so much? No, they, they get everything free. And she said, she said, well, doesn't God spoil all of us con constantly? Imagine if, uh, she said, um, the, the sunlight, the sunlight. What, imagine if God says, you have to work eight, work eight hours, so I give you four hours of sunlight. <laughs> and then she said, and then, you know, there are so many congregations who spoil the rich. It's not a damage if there's a congregation to spoil the poor. <laughs> well, in your own priesthood, like as a diocesan priest, did this really affect you, like how you went back and lived as a diocesan priest? Did you feel a struggle there? No, not at all. I feel, I feel that it. There's not such a clear-cut distinction between a religious and a diocesan priest, in my view. Um, of course, you don't have this strict obedience, and but as a priest, you are you belong to Jesus, and in the end, it's His life which you try to live. It's it's not. I believe it's dangerous if if we priests start having too many plans of our own. 
of us. It's it's dangerous because it's a riches, and uh, well, you can you can drop them, you can be obedient, but it's a, it's a, almost a temptation. You have to plan, you have to do things, but you have always to be aware that it's not you who sets the path. It's the church. You belong fully and entirely to the church. And she stressed it very much. So for me, it helped me to to lead a life which was maybe a little more of a religious uh, character. But, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to, <laughs> to, to, to drag the religious life down to my level because I'm not a religious. But... That was the reason why I joined the Corpus Christi movement, for example. That was Mother Jesus' last foundation. She founded five congregations and and the Corpus Christi movement for diocesan priests because she probably understood by intuition that loneliness, not to have a community, not to be able to exchange on the same level with others constitutes a problem for many, many secular priests. And she that and that movement she went to see the Holy Father with a piece of paper with four points of the movement. Adoration as the center, Holy Mass, uh, prayer together, meeting, eating, friendship, and then adoption by one sister. Mm. And and a little bit of, of, of spirituality of, of I thirst. And she went with a with a handwritten piece of paper to the Holy Father and said, Holy Father, this this is the movement. Please, please sign here. <laughs> <laughs> and she showed the Holy Father where he had to sign, and he signed. He said, I, I, I approve and I bless John Paul II. <laughs> well, she would ask the priests as Corpus Christi members to make like a holy hour? Is that the adoration? Yes, she would. that is an advice. That's a strong advice to have the hour of adoration in your, in your diocesan pattern. And of course, but she asked all the parish priests to give the gift of adoration to their parish. And I've I've experienced many parishes where they started, and they all are amazed how, it, how it's working. Because you need to maintain a 24-hour service. You need between 150 and 200 volunteers mm-hmm. to take an hour and, mm-hmm. and to get into the the rota or how does it in the in the schedule, right? What would she say in her movement about the fellowship that she asked of priests? Friendship, friendship. I believe for her, friendship was very important because, if, because of the word of Jesus, I call. I don't call you um, uh, servants. I call you friends, because I've told you everything. So Jesus was in friendship, in a relationship of friendship with his apostles, and so I believe that for her, the friendship amongst the priests was very important, especially when they didn't have a congregation. Mm-hmm. And she would make an exception, for example, to belong to the Corpus Christi movement. Also, religious can can uh, belong to it if their superior agrees and they have no other community. For example, if they are out of their community or whatever. And she would say, everybody can belong to this. Mm-hmm. Every a priest, bishop, deacons, and the seminarians, even seminarians with permission of their uh, re- rector. Did she ever give directives to the priest on how to cultivate that friendship? I know... Like in so many countries, priests are very isolated, a lot of work, and they kind of get very much to themselves. What would she tell them? I'm, I'm not aware of any particular directives because I believe that her her method or her her way of, of doing was to get closer to Jesus. If we get 
we all, each one of us gets closer to Jesus, we get closer to each other. And this is a, like a bit the picture of ecumenism. No? If we get closer to the truth, we get closer to each other. So if we get closer to Jesus in adoration, celebrating Mass, then we can share the friendship with each other. And that's very true, I can tell you. And we experience that with those meetings, priests coming from all over the world. We have uh, international meeting every two years. And at the beginning, sort of, ah, he comes from Kazakhstan, he comes from India, and he, is, he looks a little fat, and he, the other one looks a little odd. And so, you know, it's human. It, you, you, you look at the people like this, uh, what a funny nose, what a funny face. And at the end, there's such a deep friendship, a real joy, a real joy of having spent five, six, seven, eight days together. And you go away enriched, you can, with a great joy in your heart. What when Mother Teresa was traveling, would she ever like like take a long breakfast and just kind of chat and relax with people, or a longer meal or something? Uh, no, she would take breakfast in her community if the community was there. If she was really on a trip, which probably she would try to avoid if possible, but if it was not possible to avoid, she would pull out of a bag sandwich and 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 a thermostat with coffee and and then she would distribute to everybody mm-hmm. and then at the end she would eat herself very quickly something and that was that's it but they have a rule not to eat outside their own houses they're not allowed to eat because she had to introduce that because in india the, the hospitality is very developed so mm-hmm. even the poorest of the poor if you come to the house they would give you the last piece of bread in order to be able to tell everybody we're not going to take anything. She had to introduce that rule. I experienced that in Germany once. <laughs> that was very, that was real fun. The, the, the Bonn government, Bonn was still the capital of Germany at that moment, and she received, I think, I think a, a donation from the city or whatever, and, and she had to enroll into the Book of Honor in the, in the city of Bonn. And then they organized a big meal in a huge palace uh, hall, with 300 guests or something like this. And Mother Teresa, of course, as superior general, she could have dispensed of that rule, but she didn't. And she didn't give the sisters, there were maybe eight sisters there, she didn't give them permission to eat there. So what did they do? They sat down on the table and they started pulling out their own picnic in a huge setting of of a meal and they started distributing to everybody else. (laughs) It It was really such a joy of giving. And I believe that even those people, the wealthy people, they understood the joy of giving, the joy of sharing with the other. No? That, that was that was that was very typical for Mother Teresa. What was it like? What do you think the difference? You know, when you work with Mother Teresa, what's the big difference between the saints and normal people? Say, oh. I could say that. <laughs> That's very difficult. <laughs> Well, I believe that saints... I asked myself the question, why is it that everybody, with very few exceptions, was so almost in love with Mother Teresa? Believers, non-believers, Catholics, non-Catholics, everybody loved her. And I believe that was... uh, That mainly two reasons. First, that she was completely non-aggressive. It means she never judged anybody. 
And she said, she even said explicitly, one sin I never had to confess that I judged anybody. I mean, imagine if you can say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> never to judge anybody. And she was not a goody-goody and softy-softy. She would tell you very clearly, apparently, once she said to a priest, Father, if you continue like this, you go to hell. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, so, pff, <laughs> no, she was, she's not a goody-goody, but she would not judge him. She would judge his behavior, but not him. No? And, and, that, and you felt that immediately she would do the uttermost good for you. And you felt that she was very motherly. She, was, she reminded me of my grandmother, very severe with herself, but very generous with the others. And that's one reason. And the second reason, that's more a human reason almost. But the second reason was that I feel that she was so full of God. Jesus was so present in her. There was not there was not a stain in her in her of of egoism of, of she was really as St. Paul said, not I live but, but Jesus lives in me. And she had she had realized that to a large extent, in an extraordinary extent, which I believe that we have not discovered yet. We I, I think we don't know her. We don't know who she was. And I I, I saw the first step I accompanied her between six, seven years on different trips. And then I, I was very lucky to be able to work in the a commission for the beatification with the postulator. And there you suddenly saw other lights on her, not only your own light, but you saw many opinions of other people. And suddenly you saw how little you have seen yourself. And she was such a profound personality. If you consider, for example, that there are about 5,000, over 5,000 letters which she wrote to children, to religious congregations, to politicians, they are still unpublished. So I'm sure she will be the doctor of the church one day. Absolutely sure. They are all spiritual letters. Why do you think it's taking so long on the canonization? Mm. Why? For the, you mean for the canonization? Well, I believe because we have not discovered who she spiritually is. Because the, if we had a canonization now, I would feel that that would be a repetition of the beatification. And the media would again say she's such a social saint and she's done so much for the poor and the poor and the poor and the poor. But they wouldn't understand that her message was not be good to the poor. Her message was be transparent to God. That was her message. And so maybe it will take some years, but that's my theory. I'm, I might be completely wrong. Uh, I believe that we don't know who she is. What uh, you, you mentioned a quote she had about the, the secret of her sanctity. Well, the, one journalist asked her, Mother Teresa, what's, what's your secret? And she said, I pray. It's simple. And she meant, and she said to another priest, she asked him, Father, how many hours a day do you pray? And he said, well, I celebrate Mass, I pray my breviary. Um, well, and she said, you see, we cannot give anything which we don't have. So if we don't pray, we have nothing to give. I know uh, she was also gave a lot of talks. That was part of her ministry and speaking to people. How did she uh, approach that? How did she approach it? She 
<laughs> Sometimes she didn't, she didn't even know what she would say next minute. But I asked her, Mother Teresa, how do you, how did you prepare that the speech you gave at the, at the, uh, no, at the, at the Nobel Prize, and. She pulled out her rosary and lifted it up and said, mm, like this, <laughs> <laughs> only by prayer. And, and I, I believe that's exactly what it was. She, was. she was just listening inside and then saying what she felt she should say. And she would say tough things sometimes. And I remember in Vienna, we, we were returning from Poland on a many-hour trip, and she was really tired, really tired. But they had planned... Mass in the evening with her, and then after Mass they asked and insisted, Mother Teresa, could you say a few words to the people? And so, so she said, yes, okay. She sat down. She would never speak during Mass, never. The, the most she would speak after the blessing, but never homilies or something like this. No? Uh, and then, so she sat down, and I was sitting next to her to do the translation, and she would start... I am grateful to God uh, to be here with you. Um, I am grateful to God to be here with you in. Um, I would. I'm grateful to you to be here in this beautiful city, in this beautiful city of, in this beautiful. Father, where are we? <laughs> Mother, Vienna, <laughs> in this beautiful city of Vienna. <laughs> I mean, she was an old lady. We must not forget. She was that was between she was seventy six to seventy to eighty two, and she had a rhythm that we youngsters we we couldn't uh, cope with. I mean, we were dead in the evening. <laughs> Do you think uh, there was a? I guess maybe younger in her life did she like read a lot and study a lot about the faith? Well, she was a full fledged religious nun for almost 20 years before she got the call in the call. Mm. She was a teacher in the Intali School, St. Mary's, in Calcutta. She was, she was teaching geography, religion. Then she was director of the school, so she was an intelligent young lady. And for sure she did. Every, all, she went through the whole education of a religious, mm. a well-educated religious did she ever, like when you were traveling with her, did she ever say, you know, man, it's been a tough day? Or <laughs> just any kind of comments like that? But she would say it, Father, are you, are you tired now? Yeah. She would put it on you. She wouldn't say, I'm tired. She wouldn't say, <laughs> she, never, she would never speak about herself in any way. And even and when, when journalists or people ask her mother, uh, can you tell us about your, your youth or something? She would say, oh, you know, better speak about Jesus. The more you talk about me, the less you speak about Jesus. So away, always away from her to Jesus. And she did have a, a brother, right? Is that... She had a brother and a sister, Hage, a younger sister. And her brother was shipped to Italy when he was 12 or 14 years old because there was, he was in danger of his life in Albania. And then he joined the Italian army. And she met. he was the only one she met again in the early 60s when he was, in the, he was retiring from the Italian army. He was a general at the end. So they met, and they also they were somehow reconciled because he was always a bit 
a bit against or he was doubtful about Mother Jesus' uh, way. He, he had also written to her one day that she was wasting her, her life joining a religious community. And she wrote him back, you have joined the army, you are serving an earthly king because Italy was ruled by a king at that time. I have joined an army which serves the eternal king. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Father Leo, uh, for sharing. Thank you very much. God bless you. And may, maybe we can give a blessing to all the listeners because Mother Teresa at the end of, of interviews always said, Father, please bless them. Okay. So may the Lord bless all those who listened in and read, and fill their hearts with the joy of loving, with the joy of giving. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.